Well, <clears throat> let's uh, turn. Seems like we've been here forever, but it's a big chapter. Luke chapter 9. We're going to need this map today. <clears throat> and we're going to, uh, to run uh, quickly. So if you're a note taker, <clears throat> you'll need to be ready. Uh, but uh, we're going to uh, look today at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, uh, which arguably uh, constitute the greatest revelation of, of God in the history of the universe. But other than that, it's a pretty simple passage. <laughs> uh, when we get into to this point, of course, what we've been seeing and Luke does such a masterful job of this, is, is uh, Jesus training and educating his disciples. Uh, Jesus knows what these men are going to have to accomplish. They don't. And they are, uh, they are being uh, seen everything from Jesus. They've seen him heal uh, the sick, raise the dead, control nature, cast out demons, forgive sin. Uh, they've conversed with him. They've heard him preach. They've been sent out on a little on-the-job training, two-by-twos to, to get their feet wet, to do some of their own preaching, teaching, and healing. And now they are in a retreat at the far north. Uh, the map behind me, uh, we've looked at uh, Caesarea Philippi area all the way up here <clears throat> near Mount Hermon. That's going to be important in a minute. Uh, with one key question, over and over and over again. It's come to the disciples. It's come to the people that Jesus has interacted with so he, his disciples can see him answer the question in various ways. But the question is, who do you say that I am? We saw that question pointedly put to the disciples last week at this retreat uh, in, near Caesarea Philippi, way up north. Jesus is alone with his disciples and, and this is weeks of duration. Uh, this is a unique time that Jesus has with these men. Normally, he can't get a word in edgewise because wherever he goes, crowds will, will follow him. Uh, but he needs this time with these men. They need this time, and he's, he's uh, using it to answer this question. Last week, we looked at this. It was Peter who responded with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the Matthew version. Uh, in other words, Jesus, we see you as God, very God of very God, divine. You're not just another teacher. Uh, most of the people on the world still today, if you ask them who was Jesus, they'll say, well, he was, uh, he was a good teacher, just like so many others have been good teachers. Buddha, Muhammad, all this kind of stuff. Peter says, no, no, uh, you are singular and unique. You are God. You are divine. You are the son of God. So... If this is true, Jesus, as we saw last week, says in that case, then the three verbs that are uh, applied to every Christian from that moment on, from the disciples uh, to today, are to deny yourself, to take up your cross on a daily basis, that is, keep on denying yourself, and to follow Jesus. That means growing in your knowledge and in your uh, depth of faith in him. Why? Jesus answered that question last week also, because only those who lose their lives in this world are going to gain it in the next. 
In other words, you are not on your own throne. Put Jesus on that throne. Deny yourself and follow him. Uh, so Jesus has, has said, okay, you're going to suffer many things because I, Jesus, am going to suffer many things. That's, that's where we ended last week with that incredible statement. These disciples are, are just getting all kinds of insights at this, at this retreat, uh, if you will, that, that they could not possibly have understood. If they even understood what he meant by it, they couldn't have understood the whys behind it. But Jesus himself says, I am going to go down to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the entire Jewish religious leadership, and I'm going to be killed and resurrected. All of those things, now they have seen Jesus raise people who were dead back to life. So they would have had a smattering of understanding, but they're, they're still uh, not uh, in, in complete understanding of what's going on. And then interestingly enough, there's a full week that goes by after those events, those statements, those conversations. There's another week that goes by that has nothing whatsoever recorded. Matthew doesn't do it. Mark doesn't do it. Luke doesn't touch it. Uh, Jesus is, is simply working with these men in, in close proximity uh, teaching. And then the greatest self-revelation of God in all of scripture, where we are today in Luke chapter nine, verses 28. It's normally called the transfiguration. So <clears throat> we're going to look at uh, verses 28 and 29 to begin with. It says, Luke says, now about eight days after these sayings, that is the things that, that I've just reviewed, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What, what has happened in, that, uh, in those two verses uh, is something that's been missing from Israel for 600 years. I keep referring to the fact that when, when you can move through the gospels as Jesus is working, regardless of whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, the intensity builds. And sometimes we miss the unique, uh, incredible intensity of these events. This one, uh, after eight days, Jesus takes only three. He's not doing this with all 12. He's taking an inner circle. And Peter, James, John, you can understand as you go through the rest of the New Testament, these men wrote uh, some of the books. Uh, these are, are key disciples that Jesus has discerned through these couple of years he spent with them that these three men are going, I'm going to use them in very unique ways and special ways. And I have developed them. I know where they are. And these are the three I'm going to let in on this unique event. We don't hear anything about uh, the other nine. Uh, they go up on the mountain. Uh, don't, don't worry, waste much time about, uh, the commentators all want to know which mountain. It doesn't, if the Bible doesn't tell you which mountain, it means you don't need to worry about which mountain. Uh, they are still up around the Caesarea Philippi area, maybe. Uh, there's been eight days since this, uh, these events that we saw last week. 
And we know that by verse 51, Jesus pointedly says, it's time for me to start moving toward Jerusalem. So, and they're going to encounter Samaritan villages. Uh, I realize I'm in the way for half of you. Um, but uh, this, this little shaded area here is Samaria, uh, roughly the West Bank area that you hear about today. So Jesus is in, in not too many days is going to be from up here down into villages here as he moves toward Jerusalem here. Now, today's events is up on a mountain. He, they're up in Caesarea Philippi right by Mount Hermon, and many people will say he must be on Mount Hermon. The problem with that is Mount Hermon is 10,000 feet high, and the top of it is in snow all the time. Uh, so it's probably not Mount Hermon. There are other suggestions, Mount Tabor, which is about right here, very, very significant mountain in the history of, of Israel. Uh, Mount Gilboa is, is close to Tabor. Mount Gerizim, Mount, um, I, I, goodness, what's the one that starts with an E? Not Emo. Uh, Gerizim and somebody's got to know. It's when Joshua goes up and he puts half the people on Gerizim and half, Ebal, E-B-A-L. Uh, there, there are two little hills that are, that are very close together and he puts half of, of Israel on, on each hill and says, now I'll read it. If you keep the covenants, you people on Gerizim, you get the blessings. You're, you're illustrative of the blessing. If you violate the covenant, you people over on Mount Ebal, you got your toast. Uh, that was Joshua, but uh, those mountains continue to, to uh, come up. Remember, this, this uh, is a rift valley, so the the land has been pushed, so you've got lines of hills all the way. It could be either one of them, uh, but again, not that significant. So which mountain? Hermon, Tabor, Maron, doesn't matter. Verse 29, as he was praying, here is the key. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, first, I want you to take note, as he was praying, Luke has a convention that he uses throughout his gospel. Whenever it says Jesus is praying, there is going to be a significant event that follows. Uh, it begins in the third chapter of Luke, chapter three, verse 21, uh, when, when Jesus has, um, has been baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him. That is preceded by as he was praying. Luke chapter six, verse 12, Jesus is praying and then he goes and he calls these 12 men. Luke chapter nine, we, we saw it in verse 18. That's when Peter's confession comes. We see it today in verse 29 of Luke chapter nine, the transfiguration follows his prayer. Luke chapter 11, verse one is when he prays and then he gives the disciples the Lord's prayer when they say, teach us how to pray. And he gives them the Lord's prayer. Luke chapter 22 in the garden of Gethsemane, obviously the whole chapter uh, has Jesus in prayer. So whenever something really, and, and what that leads to is the cross, so every time you see Luke say, Jesus was in prayer, or Jesus is off praying, get ready because something very significant is, is going to come. And in this case, again, uh, the transfiguration. Uh, Matthew, <coughs> interestingly enough, chapter 17, verse two says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothing became white as light. In other words, Jesus's appearance changed. If you read the Greek of Matthew and Mark, the Greek word they use is metamorphos, uh, where we get, of course, metamorphosis and all those kinds of things. It, it's as if there is a significant change in every aspect of Jesus. Uh, he becomes dazzling white. 
Everything about it is talking about this glorification process. And that is what you need to understand about this. <clears throat> These three disciples, Peter, James, John, they see something that no one else sees until we die. We don't see it on earth. We can only, we'll see it when we die, but only when we die. And that is a glorified Jesus. These three uh, men get to see this uh, before they die. He is, uh, the words of Phil Riken, I love this sentence. Jesus radiated with divine incandescence, his deity shining through the veil of his humanity. What these three men have, are seeing here is, is you've heard the phrase progressive revelation. The Bible uh, is a progressively revealing story about Jesus Christ. When you're in the Old Testament, you're always looking ahead to this, this Messiah, this veiled um, assertion made by all of the prophets, the suffering servant, if you're in Isaiah, we know how, how he is in, in Jeremiah, uh, and on and on and on. All of this glorification is a means that God uses with his people Israel step by step by step, building in the intensity. It begins in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. The Israelites are leaving Egypt. The miraculous parting of the Red Sea. They get to the other seashore. The sea closes. The Egyptians are dead. But now what? How are we going to make it through a land we don't know? They're down here coming in to this, uh, what's called the Sinai Peninsula, and they've never been here. They've been 400 years in Egypt. So what is going to guide us and how are we going to get through it? A pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. This is the first time that God, in essence, glorifies himself to these people of Israel. By the time you get to Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses is up on the mountain. Now, this is the second time. The first time Moses goes up on the mountain, you know what happens. He gets the Ten Commandments and gets angry, breaks them, but he goes back. He goes back a second time, and Jesus writes them again on the tablets. It's that second visit in Exodus 33, verse 18, where Moses says, show me your glory. Moses and Peter, I think, would get along really, really well because they, they have no fear. Uh, they blurt things out, especially uh, Peter, uh, as we're going to see in a minute. But uh, Exodus 33, 18, Moses says, show me your glory. God says, you don't understand I can't show you my, if, if I show you my glory, you're, it will kill you. But he says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will let my glory pass by you. And after I'm gone, you can peek because I know you're gonna do that, Moses. Peek around the rock and you'll see the residual of my glory. Mount Sinai, cloud of fire on the mountain of the entire mountain. Moses is up there. And after 40 days, he comes down and his face is still glowing from just coming tangentially near this glory. Exodus 34, 29 to 35, that's when Moses comes down, his face is glowing. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. The people are arranged by tribes and by units and they have a tabernacle built. And God says, all right, I will put my glory in the inner part of the tabernacle. 
Only the high priest can go into this inner part and he only once a year. But I will put my Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. Aaron and subsequent priests can go in again only once. They tied ropes, by the way. When the high priest, that one day, when the high priest was going into the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around him in case he had a heart attack or something happened and he didn't come back out and they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies without having to go in because anybody who went in and got that close to God's glory was immediately dead. Second Chronicles 7, verses 1 to 3. You have the temple built. This is the temple of Solomon, the most glorious temple that Israel ever built. The glory of God fills the temples, and again, the priests couldn't go in. Then you get to Ezekiel 8. Fascinating, fascinating couple of chapters. Actually goes 8, 9, and 10 in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, remember, is a prophet while Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem prophesying about the Babylonians who are coming in and wiping everything out that was Israel. Ezekiel is down in Babylon prophesying to those people of Israel who've already been taken captive and moved down to the city of Babylon. In Ezekiel chapter 8, and especially all of chapter 10, if you want to look at chapter 8 of Ezekiel, look at verses 7 to 16. Uh, this is when the glory of God departs from the temple. Just as we've seen over and over and over again through Jeremiah, God has warned them. He has come to them. He's been so patient with them. This is a, a, an issue that America needs to take seriously, very seriously. Uh, God does have an end point when his patience runs out. And in the case of Israel, it ran out. And he said, all right, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem, there won't be one stone left on top of another. And all of you are going to be sent into exile for 70 years, which means that most of those people who went, given the average lifespan in that era of history, most of those people who went to Babylon died in Babylon. It was their children who came back, the Nehemiahs and the Ezra's and people of that ilk. Uh, however, by the time you get uh, to Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this incredible description uh, in chapter eight about the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem. And what's so poignant about Ezekiel's description is you almost feel God hesitating. He doesn't really want to. It, it's like that glorious passage. I love it, Hosea chapter 11. Uh, if you want to be encouraged about God, uh, when you know you've sinned and you know he's mad and you know you violated everything, uh, if you want to still... Uh, see something that is, that is so wonderful about uh, Jesus. Jesus fleshes it out. Hosea 11, same thing happens in Ezekiel 8. The glory of God hovers, hovers over the temple as it's departing and it goes out and even remains in Jerusalem. It says he goes to the east and hovers on the eastern hill uh, or western hill rather, that's, that's uh, the Mount of Olives and then departs forever. That's the 600 years. That, that's like 595 or so BC. That glory that followed the Israelites from the time of Moses forward has not returned to Israel until this text we're reading right here. Now there was a tangential part when Jesus, when the star is there and, and Jesus is born and says the, the glory of, to the shepherds out in the field, that's a valid 
uh, uh, sort of, again, it's kind of a tangential uh, essence of this, but here it is front, center, and centered on Jesus Christ in this passage in Luke. Uh, by the way, when, they, when the Israelites lose the ark, you remember that story? It's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, the Israelites lose the ark to the Philistines and they cry out, Ichabod, the captured of the ark. The, the glory has, has left Israel. Um, Jesus, when Jesus comes, with the exception of that, that notation about uh, sort of a glory seen by the shepherds, whatever that was, maybe related to the star, who knows, uh, it's veiled. Jesus, we've got Jesus now at around 30 years of age, 31, 32, whatever it was. It's, he's kept that glory veiled. You know, everybody keeps seeing Jesus and they say, wait a minute, that's, I know who that guy is. That's the son of the carpenter. That's Joseph's son from Nazareth. Uh, no big deal. Jesus doesn't just come out and, and cause everybody to swoon. He keeps that glory veiled, but not now because Jesus is about to go down to Jerusalem for the last time to a cross and a crucifixion. And he's got to have these 12 men ready. So he takes the leadership of the 12, Peter, James, John, and he takes them up onto this mountain and they see the greatest manifestation of this glory ever seen in the history of scripture. We're gonna see it again, by the way, when it comes back, but that's a different, different day. Okay, we're gonna look at three different conversations that take place on this mountain, all of them within these 10 verses or so of Luke chapter nine, very condensed. Uh, first conversation, verses 30 and 31. Interesting people showing up. Verse 30 says, and behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So much uh, to be talked about there, but um, these three men, these three disciples are up there on the mountain and Jesus has two people with him. Uh, one of them's been dead for 1,400 years. One of them's been dead for 900 years. That's Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah in verse 30? Why these two guys? Well, because Moses brought the law to Israel and Elijah represented the prophets. If you get to the um, road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, which we will get to eventually, uh, you remember Jesus incognito is walking with these disciples after the crucifixion and they're understandably uh, very depressed and downhearted and, and you can almost see their chins dropping and they're walking, it's night and they're walking with Jesus only they don't know it's Jesus. And he's, he says, What's, uh, what, what are you so sad about? And they said, well, you must not have heard of Jesus of Nazareth was just crucified. And it says, he then began to unfold to these two, what? the law and the prophets. These two men, Moses and Elijah, are the human personality representatives of the law and the prophets. In other words, the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, in a sense, therefore, Moses is the founder of Israel's religious economy, Elijah, uh, the restoration of the prophetic and the word economy, both of which are going to be uh, united in Jesus in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, also, both of these men converse with God on a mountaintop. Uh, Elijah at Mount Horeb, which is another word for Mount Sinai. 
Uh, if you look at uh, almost penultimate, third verse from the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, you'll see the reference to Elijah in the beginning of the law and Moses at Mount Sinai. Mount, Mount Sinai, nobody really knows where Mount Sinai is, but most people speculate the very tip of the Sinai Peninsula or here on the other side of, of this branch of the Red Sea. Way down here. Now Hermon, way up here. But both Moses and Elijah communicated with God from Mount Sinai. Moses, when he gets the Ten Commandments, Elijah, you remember when Elijah uh, deals that crushing blow to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is here. Uh, it's, it's this, uh, we're going to have some fun, by the way, with maps eventually. Uh, Mount Carmel is up here. It's a range. It, it'd be like uh, saying Elijah was on the Rockies. And you don't quite know which, which rocky, which, uh, well, Carmel is like that. It's the name of the whole chain of mountains that runs down, uh, creates the Valley of Jezreel, um, breadbasket of Israel, then and now. We'll get to that too later. Can't wait. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate, uh, both these guys have these mountaintop experiences, both on the same mountain, Mount Sinai. Both of them were shown God's glory both on Mount Sinai. Remember Moses asked pointedly, let me see your glory, and God hides him in a cleft. Elijah, you remember, he, he run after he's, he's pulled off this enormous, by faith, he's, he's crushed the prophets of Baal, but then he runs from this, this evil king of the northern kingdom, and he runs for 40 days and 40 nights, which gets him back to Horeb. He's in a cave. The cave is at part of Mount Sinai. So he too, uh, and, and God says, okay, I'll show you. I will pass before you, as it were. He shows him three different iterations of this uh, thing. That, by the way, is uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. I would turn there if we had time. But that's one you might want to put down as a note. That's a fascinating uh, way that God shows his glory to Elijah. 1 Kings 19, verses 11 to 13. Both of these guys expected we're expected to return at the end of the age. You remember a couple of weeks ago when Jesus first asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? They say, some says Moses, some says Elijah. Why would they come up with those names? Because the Old Testament predicts these two guys are going to be seen again in one way or another. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, in the case of, of Moses, here in Luke, we've seen Elijah pop up several times. Both of these men experience very unusual deaths. Moses, you remember, is taken to Mount Nebo. Moses never gets to the promised land. He has led the people up, but because he strikes the rock, God says, you're not going to get into it, but I'll let you see it. So he brings Moses on the top of Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is right here. Uh, just opposite the uh, northern end of the Dead Sea. And you can go on Mount Nebo today, but you should not eat. Uh, what were those things? <laughs> was, oh, goodness. Anyway, you can see Moses, Moses is then taken up from Mount Nebo. Elijah, same sort of thing. He goes up in a chariot of fire. So these two men are very, very significant and therefore not unusual at all that they would be with Jesus in this particular event. Now, what were they talking about? Since Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah is talking about, that would have been a great place to be a fly on the wall. I would have loved to have heard that. But Luke gives us an insight in verse 31. His departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now Luke, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke is the only one, that word departure in Luke is exodos, exodus. Luke uses the same word that's used of the exodus in the Old Testament. In other words, this is going to be the exodus par perfection. This is going to be the real exodus. What is he talking about when he goes to Jerusalem? He's talking about, of course, about the cross and the resurrection. That is the exodus. That is the salvation. That is what's going to make all of those other things illustrative. And that's why we talk about progressive revelation through scripture. Giving you a little bit of snippet here, snippet there, uh, sometimes tangentially, always dedicated to Israel with those few little people that come, very, very important people like Ruth, uh, who come in as a Moabitess, uh, the covenant with Abraham that suggests that all of this blessing is eventually going to get to every nation in the world, including the United States of America, down to Greenville, South Carolina in 2021. Uh, so they're talking about this departure. Uh, now, there are a lot of things that we could talk about that are sort of hinted at by this. Number one, uh, wonder what they looked like. What did Moses and Elijah look like? Did they look like um, they looked when, when they were taken up from Mount Nebo or the chariot of fire? Uh, had they aged any? Um, what had they been doing? What, what had Moses been doing for the last 1400 years? Elijah for 900, who knows? Uh, but they do prove that there's an afterlife and that in this afterlife, believers have a relationship with God and with one another. These are questions that all of us have from time to time. I wonder what's going to happen when. And this is illustrative of, of some of that. Um, people who know Christ will share in his glory. But the main essence of what we've seen through verse 31 is that uh, this entire Old Testament is present uh, to declare that everything is coming together in Jesus Christ. Again, think about the disciples. This, this is, uh, this is uh, like, like, this is the greatest lesson thus far. They've seen many, many things, and they have learned many, many things. But Peter, James, and John are seeing something that is uh, is very fruitful for them to understand. Uh, Jesus is about to bring off a better Exodus. And uh, Moses and Elijah, of course, understand this. And frankly, they're looking forward to it. They're in a kind of unusual position. They need that cross and resurrection for their salvation to be secure also. Oftentimes, I, people ask, what saved Old Testament people? The same thing that saves New Testament people, faith. They were looking, their faith was looking forward to the Messiah who was to come. Our faith looks backwards to the Messiah who has come. Both faiths look to a living, breathing uh, Messiah in heaven. So that's the first conversation, this uh, verses 30, 31 with Jesus, Moses, Elijah. Second conversation, verses 32 and 33. Our friend Peter, <laughs> we never can, uh, Peter, Peter comes through in, in uh, Petrine fashion here, verses 32 and, and three. Uh, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. I, I don't even want to comment on that. If you could fall asleep then, you could fall asleep on a New York subway. Um, but when they became fully awake, 
they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Then the most important part of that verse, not knowing what he said. In other words, contraindicated. This isn't, it was not a, one of Peter's shining moments. Uh, Peter, James, John apparently had fallen asleep. Uh, once they woke up, that's all the more reason since they weren't privy, apparently, to all that had gone on between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. You would think, therefore, mum would be the word. I'm grateful to be here. I'm seeing a, a completely glorified, morphosed Jesus I don't know what I'm seeing. I don't understand these things. Silence would have been a good recommendation, but not for Peter. Uh, Peter wants the fireworks to last. So in verse 33, he says, let's build three tents, not knowing what he said. Why was that a bad idea? There are at least three reasons. There are more, but uh, number one, they're not all equal. The implication is a tent for Jesus, a tent for Moses, a tent for Elijah, but they're not equal. Uh, Jesus is not Moses, and Elijah and Moses were, were big uh, people in the history of, of Israel, uh, but they're not God. Jesus is God. Uh, the second reason, Jesus does not want a mountaintop shrine built to himself. A third reason, Jesus does not want to be sidetracked. He's on a mission to get back to Jerusalem and a cross, and he does not want to spend extra time in a retreat on top of the mountain uh, with these individuals. That takes us to the third conversation, verses 34 and 35. Now we hear from God the Father. As he, verse 34, as he was saying these things, that is Peter, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I, again, the, 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 the gravitas of this event is such that, uh, that Jesus has the, the centerpiece of the disciples, if you will, and Peter, James, and John with him. Uh, but it's, it's impossible not to overemphasize the import of this event. God the Father now comes down to the mountain in a cloud and the cloud envelops all of them, especially Peter, James, and John. And they understandably, in verse 34, are afraid. God the Father then speaks, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. We have seen this building up to this in Peter's confession, Peter's very excellent, insightful confession of a few days before, eight days uh, previous to this event, according to Luke, where Jesus recognizes, yes, Jesus, you are God himself. You are divine. You are the son of, of the living God. Uh, God the Father comes down and underscores that statement uh, that he is in fact my son. He is, he is God. He is, he is king uh, that I have, am sending you. Uh, he's also, of course, from so many, virtually all of the books of the Old Testament, but Isaiah in particular, the suffering servant. He's going to go to the cross and die. You know what chapters 52 and 53 in Isaiah speak. 
Uh, he is therefore the priest. And of course, uh, he is the word of God that brings true truth. He is the prophet. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. That's why the beginning, uh, this one I, I will read. Uh, he, <clears throat> he brings this kind of thinking to the beginning. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews begins like this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and he's coming again. Uh, that is what uh, compels the writer of Hebrews to begin his book uh, with this singular notion of who Jesus is. And these three disciples are seeing all of that as well. And God, the father says, listen to him. And he says to each one of us, listen to him. We have something that Peter, James, and John did not have. We have his word of this inerrant, infallible, true truth word from this great God. So the father says, listen to this man. He is the way, the truth, the life. Uh, he is the wine and the bread of communion. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. Uh, take his yoke upon you for his light. He is an entire focus of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the whole history of the earth and all of eternity is focused on this man, Jesus Christ, this God-man. Therefore, we end in verse 36 in stunned silence, appropriate for once, for no one to interject anything. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now that's going to change. All three of these men, Peter, uh, the opening of First Peter, the opening of Second Peter, the opening of the Gospel of John, the opening of the first letter of John, uh, these men are going to start talking about this event of the transfiguration after Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, gone to the cross, been killed on the cross, resurrected by the Father, ascended into heaven, and then Jesus himself, before he ascends, is going to tell them, Stay here in Jerusalem and do nothing until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When that happens, then I want you telling this story through Jerusalem, through Judea, through Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. All of this silence is going to change with these three men and the rest of the disciples, uh, but not until we get past a cross. Acts, um, well, goodness. Uh, I've got a, a whole lot of uh, passages I want to get to, but I'm not, I don't have the time to do it. I'm going to close with just one of them. A good uh, friend, Dave Powison, uh, taught me an incredible lesson about the Psalter. Uh, he used to call it uh, anti-Psalms or reversing the Psalms, however you wish uh, to think about it. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's insightful to take one of the Psalms and reverse all the verbs. 
So I'm going to do this with you for, for Psalm 23. This would be illustrative of anyone who does not see Jesus Christ for the son of the living God, for very God of very God, uh, wrapped in the glory of, of, uh, of our triune majesty, God. Here is Psalm 23, and I'll reverse all of the verbs. Familiar psalm. The Lord is not my shepherd. I'll be in continuous want. He does not make me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to weeds. He does not lead me beside still waters. He allows me to remain in the rough surf. He does not restore my soul. He does not lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will know nothing but fear. For he is not with me. His rod and his staff are not there to comfort me. He does not prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I have to face them alone. He does not anoint my head with oil. My cup is empty. Goodness and mercy shall not follow me any of the days of my life. And I will never dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a stunning, stunning yet valid picture of the person who does not see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. So what he has shown us in this transfigured, uh, incredible return of his glory, before he will go to Jerusalem and be insulted, be, in, be spit upon, uh, be uh, kicked, beaten, and of course have nails rammed through his feet and hands, uh, is that he is the true God. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, uh, so many things to think about in this uh, brief eight or nine verse passage. Uh, we are humbled by it. Uh, Peter will be humbled by it when he uh, gets his uh, apostolic feet under him. Uh, Father, we would be the same way. Uh, help us to understand, Father, that in your son we have prophet, priest, and king. We have all that we need. He is the light of the world. In him and in him alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, help us to know that he shepherds us, that he indeed is our great shepherd. Our cups do overflow. He prepares tables for us in the presence of our enemies. He leads us beside the still waters. He leads us into his arms and into heaven. Father, make us those who listen to your son in his word from this point forward and forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.